This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast, and I am Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm also going to play H.F. Mason, the general surgeon today, since he couldn't be with us. But That's going to be a tough task. Well, guys, today we are so incredibly honored to have a very good friend, Billy Taylor. Billy, I'm so glad you're here. If you would tell us, tell the audience uh, who you are and a little bit about your unique background and what you're doing today. Well, first of all, Skip, thank you for having me on the podcast. I was excited to get the invitation and honored. Um, uh, Billy Taylor, I spent 30 years with Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Uh, worked my way through uh, running some of their largest plants, uh, both union and union free. Uh, and then I moved to running North America operations for their commercial plants and then became the chief diversity and inclusion officer. So how do you embrace the people side of operational excellence? And I like to say diversity inclusion, diversity is who drives excellence. Inclusion is how you drive it. And so when I went there, I spent 30 years, I made the decision to retire and end up starting uh, the company Linked XL, meaning Linked Excellence. And so from that, uh, it's a business operating system firm where we help design your operating system. So embracing what you do best and taking the tools from systems like the Toyota system, or Toyota, uh, we help you build your unique system to embrace your unique differences. And so that's what I do now, uh, working with companies like Note Printing Australia, Continental Structural Plastics, and PPG. Well, well, Billy, I, I'm, uh, I've heard you speak so many times in, on keynotes and a theme that I've always enjoyed uh, listening to you talk about it at different levels, at different angles, is the subject of standardization. And I know that sometimes when people hear that word, they might think that you're trying to put constraints on them. Tell me a little bit, why does that uh, subject of standardization mean so much to you? I think standards, again, they're not monuments, so they don't handcuff you. They're not, they're, they're permanent. They're not permanent, I'm sorry. Uh, you have to earn the right to change them. When I think of standards, put it in the context of what you accept, you cannot change. So if you don't have a standard, then you'll accept anything. And so you have this guideline and hold to that guideline until you find something better. So you have to earn the right to change. And so standards build those guidelines that drive you to perfection or excellence. And so what you accept, you cannot change. And I, and, and I, and I use those things around standards, those mindsets around standards, even when I talk to my children. Right? I often say, what you accept, you cannot change. Even when you're dating someone, what's your standard? So standards are applicable in life as well in business. And so when I go into operations, our, my first question is define winning. If I don't know what winning is, then I have no chance of winning. When I'm asking you, what's your standard for, for performance? What's the standard? Because if you don't have a standard, then your expectations are a secret. And you can't manage a secret. And so when I look at standards, that's that guideline that I think you have to be very upfront about. 
You know, one of the things I like to think about it also, and see see if you agree or your reaction, is that there's there's two types of standards, or maybe maybe not the word type, maybe in the best word, but I like to think about the standard outcome versus the standard methods to produce the standard outcome. And in the Toyota Kata mindset that we promote at Baptist, um, you know, the standard method is just an experiment. And and we have to have to experiment our way to ultimately be able to produce the standard outcome. But it's a much more respectful environment when we have those standards versus just having tribal knowledge that can change from day to day. Yes. And, you know, using again, standing in the frame of a kata. Right. And those standards should be tested as well. Right. Your hypothesis. And so you have to have that baseline. It's, 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 it's critically important. As you look at rolling those out, your standard methods to get your standard results. And I look at what are your KPAs that deliver your KPIs? Right? When right. you look at what's your standards around what am I going to do and how That's I'm right. going to do that. And I look at what am I going to get by, from those standards? That's because right. You, right. In operational excellence, predictability is important. That's right. That's and standards right. help you be, become more consistent in what you do, how you do it, and the results you get. That's right. You right? know, so, go, ahead. go ahead. I just remember one story. Sorry, there was a story that you got to tell. And it was you were a very well known, accomplished athlete in high school. And your mom really, from my understanding, gave you your first lesson around standardization. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I, I tell this story to people to get the point across around what you accept you cannot change. As a young kid, I was a very, really good athlete. And I kind of blow the story up, right? The older I get, the better I was. So, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll put that out there up front. I line up in the backfield and I was averaging six touchdowns a game. And I had a nickname, BT Express, right? Touchdown Taylor. They pitched me the ball before I could even start running. The band played the fight song. Because they knew I was going to score. And so, but my mother had a standard in our house that says, if you make anything less than a B, you cannot play. Well, we're undefeated. We're going into the city championship game. And we're actually favored by 20 points to win that game. When report cards came out, I had all A's and one F. My mother took me off the team. I couldn't believe she would have done that. And my first response to my mom was, you're not fair. Now think about it. I'm telling her she's not fair for holding me to the standard. Well, they played the game without me, and they lost 54 to nothing. And at that point, the teacher came by, the athletic director came by, everyone came by to talk my mother into compromising on her standard. And her reply was, the standard is the standard. See, what you negotiate, you cannot change. What you accept becomes the new standard. And so they played the game. Fast forward, when she passed away, she was in hospice. And I remember sitting there, and I'm crying, and I'm saying, I'm not ready for you to leave. And she said, no, it's my time, son. But what I need to tell you is this. I agonized about taking you off that team for years. Like most leaders agonize around 
the way they treat different players, the A players and the B players in their team. They hold them to different standards instead of a consistent standard. See, she was agonizing on should she have compromised and let me play. And as I was standing there, she says, now that I know I'm about to leave this earth, son, I have to tell you, I'm so glad I didn't compromise on my standard. As I look at you today, son, I'm glad the standard was the standard. But that wasn't the, 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 the culminating part as far as reflections to me. My best friend who played in that game, he broke his neck in a four-wheel um, motorcycle accident, and we had his funeral. And all of my friends came back, and I had to fly into town. And as I walked in, they were with him when he expired. But they told me, Don wanted us to tell you something that we envied you growing up. When you thought we were laughing at you because you had to come in the house early and do your homework or you couldn't come out to play until you completed your homework, you thought we were laughing at you. We weren't. What we'll tell you is we don't remember nothing about that football game in the eighth grade, but what we do remember is why you could you didn't play. Hmm. And what's carried us through life was the value of having standards. And he wanted you to know that, how much of an impact your mother had on us with standards. And most leaders, they agonize about holding people to the standards. Standards are not punishments. They're guidelines. They help you, right, for continuous improvement. Wow. So that's the, yeah, and so, you know, the standard is the standard, and I'm so grateful I didn't play in that game today. I'm so grateful that standards exist. Right? That's a that's a really powerful story. And I, I'm, I was thinking about and we've talked on this program before about standards and in, in medicine. And, you know, we talked how, you know, and for a lot of medical care, there there seems to not be a standard. Um, but I was reflecting on it. And, and that's not necessarily true. I mean, there is what we call the standard of care. And we expect and, and if you ever get sued for something, that is one thing they're going to try to find out is did that doctor follow the standard of care? So. You know, we do have standards in healthcare. Uh, yes. The issue is, I think, holding physicians and providers to that standard in real time. You know, we, we hold them to it after an event has occurred down the line in the, you know, in the courtroom. But um, in real time, we don't necessarily hold them accountable uh, to the standard on a day to day basis, mm -hmm. uh, even though they may be practicing within the standard. It, it's uh, not always easy to see. Um, so, I mean, do you have any thoughts on, you know, one is defining the standard. You have to do that. And I think we do for most of our uh, clinical diseases to have standards of care. But as far as so you have the de definition of it, but then how do you ensure that uh, an organization or, or a body such as physicians hold themselves to the standard in real time? One of the things first, I think what's critically important that that's often missed is deliberate strategic clarity, right? That's important that you break that strategy down into small elements as it's a, applicable at different levels. Because most companies get so caught up in a common language versus a common meaning. And so as you shift from area to area, 
levels of the, 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 the organization, the meaning, the language is different, but the meaning is the same. Let me give you an example. If I land on a plane, I land on a plane and I land in, um, I'm going to say Brazil, or Latin America, and I get off the plane, they're going to say, hola. I land in New York, they're going to say, hi. Do they mean the same? Yes. So I have to understand my audience for clarity. Do they understand what their standard is? That's important. Now, I'm from Texas. If you get off the plane there, they're going to say, howdy. Okay, so it's just a common meaning. Right. The next part of it is once the standards are clear, now here comes a part of accountability. It's non-negotiable. You put the person in a position where they own that standard. Because in the absence of ownership comes blame. I do an exercise whenever I do a keynote every time. And in every organization I go in, I say, everybody, please stand up. We're going to exercise. And I have them hold their hands up in the air. And I give them what's called standard work. Now, don't you think about the question you just asked me. Standard work. We're going to turn to the left, stretch, count to three. And we're going to turn to the right, stretch, count to three. And then we're going to do spirit fingers because we want you to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Then I'm going to say on the count of three, we're going to clap. And I ask everybody clearly, do you understand the standard? They say yes. I says, okay, let's go to work. I says, put your hands up. Here we go to the left. One, two, three, to the right, one, two, three, in the middle, one, two, and then I clap on two. Then I say three. Everybody claps on two with me. Now I asked them the standard was clap on three. Then I asked them, so why did you clap on two when I asked you to clap on three? The first thing they say is, because you did. And then I say, oh, you're going to blame me because you can't focus, right? <laughs> and then they start laughing. And now I've got them captivated. And then I say, well, there's two things here that leaders have to embrace. People will follow what you do before they follow what you say. But the standard is the standard. It's non-negotiable. Leaders are not exempt. What I would have hoped for was someone who would have called me out and leaders have to be willing to be called out on the standard. And often leaders are not, right? They don't want the dead fish put on the table, right? And you have to put the dead fish on the table or it's going to what? Stink. And so that's what I say. Here's where standards start to come into play and they, they stick. When companies celebrate the red. When standards become punitive, that's why people don't want to uh, be held accountable to those standards because it's punitive. And, and psychological safety is just as hurtful as physical safety. And so your, your standards have to come with some level of psychological safety. What's well, okay to pe for people to tell you? You know, I was getting off the plane last night and uh, one of my partners and, uh, and, and he works with, with the firm and we had an incident and we're walking down the corridor and I say to him, I bring up something around the standard. And he felt comfortable enough to tell me, so let's talk about something more important. I'm like, OK, what do you have coffee in the office tomorrow? What he was, it was safe for him to tell me, shut up. I don't want to hear about that no more. <laughs> That's not going to help advance us.
right? The standard is we focus on the business, Billy, and you're letting those, those outside things come in. But you know what? I have a safe space that he can tell me about the standard. It's psychologically safe. And so that's what I see most organiz organizations that have problems with standards. Standards become punitive. And then I, I, I laugh about this. Uh, when they become punitive, you create the, the, the Saturday night fever uh, environment, right? And that's this. Remember John Travolta uh, and Saturday Night Fever? And people get in the meeting, I, 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 I stand alive, stand alive. And that's going to throw everybody under the bus. No. The standard's right. not important anymore. It's about survival, and that's become things are punitive. Yeah, it's a great, great point. The other thing I think is interesting, Billy, is that uh, and we'll uh, for the podcast listeners, we'll we'll shift to another subject in a minute. But another thing I've heard you speak so many times on that I find interesting is I call it different stories of evolution of understanding. So not only did your mother at a young age, you were still learning the importance because you had a. Um, a mentor when you were coming through the executive rank at Goodyear that really sent you a loud and clear message to it. Am I saying that correctly? That, that is correct. And uh, uh, Larry Robbins, uh, and he happened to be one of my best friends, uh, and he was grooming me as I was coming through the ranks. But he would go the extra mile to let me know what the standard was and that there's consequences right? when you continue to not follow the standard. Sure. And he asked two questions for me. What do you need from me to follow the standard? So he was a part of the solution. What do you need from me? Now, what I would say, there's a difference between need and want. All right? I'm a car enthusiast. I want a Bentley. I need a ride to work. There's a difference. Right? <laughs> so he would break it down to say, what do you need from me? And he would... Every, in every case, he would give me what I needed. And then he would come back and say to me, the next question was, why do you accept that? Why do you accept people not following the standard? And he was very hard on me. In fact, uh, I've only been written up twice in my career, both by him. <laughs> Once I thought I was getting a raise and we had almost record performance. He calls me into his office, I'm thinking I'm getting a raise and he hands me a letter that says, for failing to meet the standard, here are the consequences. And I'm so mad at him. It's like my mother all over again. How could you do this to me? Hmm. And when I really thought about it, the standard was the standard. Hmm. I had everything I needed to follow the standard. And you know what he had asked me to do? Two months in a row after that, we delivered zero losses to the customer. We drove all the profitability numbers and all we did was follow the standard. We didn't do nothing extra. So let me uh, connect a dot or let me at least go in an area that some people might think that there's no connection between. Um, I I'm aware of and I want our audience to know that, uh, Billy, you are on the uh, board at the Shingo Institute and and I have the great honor of uh, being a Shingo examiner. And, you know, of the 10 guiding principles that make up the Shingo model, uh, the very first one is respect for every individual. 
and uh, start to connect the dots as we transition from standardization to respect. Many people might think that those two have nothing to do with each other. And, um, you know, I've heard you quite often say, uh, see if I can remember the quote, uh, if you make people visible, they will make you valuable, you know. So talk to, to us a little bit about that, Billy. Yeah, so when you say respect for people, what we what internalize most is our value proposition. When we feel value, that is one of the most engaging tools you have is to make people feel valued. When you walk into your hotel room, when you check in, if you just say hello, I have what's called a two-foot rule. You get within two feet of me and we make eye-to-eye contact, I say hello. It's the Billy Taylor two-foot rule. And from that, people just migrate to me. And it's right, the, that, that part of people want to feel value in relationships, on their jobs. People want to feel value. And that's how you show your greatest, uh, I want to say, sentiment of respect. One of my best mentors and business partners were Sammy the janitor. Sammy would come have coffee with me every single day when I was in Fayetteville, North Carolina. The only time Sammy ever got mad at me is when I wouldn't let him buy. Now think about that. And his comment to me was, I have money too. Hmm. I want to be able to buy you coffee too. But he'd often tell me, now, General, what you're about to tell those people in that break area, you're speaking a foreign language to them. Now, explain to me how you're going to present that. And I'm like, Sammy, I love that idea. I'm going to use that. When Sammy walks out of my office, how does Sammy feel? Value. And respect for people is is including them. Making their voice be heard. Right? That constancy of purpose is now they become evangelists to what you're doing. And I call them process evangelists. Right? What's the message? But if you make people visible, they'll make you valuable. One of my friends has this quote, and he, and he developed it when he was a plant manager. He says, Billy, all encounters matter. I says, absolutely. All encounters matter. And when you're, you're a leader, you're kind of like a rock star. You don't see it like that, but people see you like that. And so if you're out there walking by people, you're not talking to people. You're not acknowledging people. Something that simple they don't feel you value them. I love that comment that all encounters matter. Uh, if, I, if I can nerd out on you for a second, that makes me think about, um, I was having a conversation with uh, Dr. Edgar Schein uh, that's written much on the subject of culture. And he made a statement and I had to think about it for a while. Uh, he said that when he was teaching at MIT, he had a, a businessman that came and said, everything happens through conversations. And that kind of saying the same thing that you're saying, is that correct? That is, that is, that is correct. Yeah. And, and giving people, and that gives people uh, an opportunity for their voice to be heard. Right through that right. conversation, they feel valued. Uh, it's funny when we, when we had to have lunch today, we just came back last night and I'm walking up to the counter. We're masked up. And the first thing the lady says, Hey, Billy, now, I've only been in this building maybe two months, maybe. But you know what? I used to go and say, hey, Lauren, how are you doing? 
I see her name tag. Now she looks forward to seeing Billy. Billy looks forward to seeing her. And guess what? John comes around the corner, who's a chef. Is that Billy? Right? When I walked in this morning, he says, hey, Billy. And I'm thinking, wow, what are we doing to each other? We're making each other visible. We're making each other visible. And therefore, we both feel valued. It's not about lunch. It's not about who has a title. It's that point around making people feel valued. I think that's you know, really fascinating. Um, you know, the, the part about especially making people visible and, and getting input from sources that you would not necessarily traditionally look to. You know, one of the books I liked that I picked up recently was it's called Range. And one of the things that it got to in the end uh, was just having that diverse group of opinions uh, and voices come in, especially when you're making decisions, um, can really can really help you. And it, it's been really helpful in complex industries uh, to avoid groupthink and avoid uh, some of those uh, narrow-minded kind of everybody is thinking the exact same way because they're all trained the same way, uh, and it can really expose flaws in your arguments. Um, you know, have you noticed over your your career that uh, pulling in those those different voices has helped you? Absolutely. So here's my saying. I said, I had to be very smart to go up the corporate ladder. And I was smart. I've got 13 degrees. Everybody, yeah, 13. Yeah. I was smart enough to earn two. I hired 11. <laughs> and I use all 13 of them to the fullest. And I do. I look around where I'm not strong and I build teams around me that bring something to the table that'll help me. Right? I, and that's, for me, that's the, the being open-minded, right? The challenge of, of, of operational excellence is knowing enough to know you're right, but not knowing enough to know when you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And being open-minded to bring people in and bring different viewpoints, right? Because it's not your viewpoint by itself that's going to drive excellence. And, and, and you hear about culture and, and those old sayings around culture, eat strategy for breakfast. I've heard those things. But what I will tell you is culture controls strategy. It really does. And control is a harsh word, but culture controls strategy. And when people are buying in to what you're doing, they're going to drive the performance. That, that's that value proposition again. And often people forget that. Uh, we build this thing around accountability and ownership. With the new workforce, right, millennials now, they live in work at the same time. Right? When I was coming up, I had to work to live. It's a different world now. So how do I tap into that in today's workforce? And what I mean by that, in the past, we used to really focus on accountability. I want accountability. Billy Taylor wants ownership with today's workforce. See, now accountability is a subset of ownership. I want you to think about it. If you've ever rented a car, right, I'm accountable for that car and to get it back. But I don't treat it like the car I own. I don't wash that rental car before I take it back. I'm not changing the oil in that rental car. I'm not even going to let you eat in my car. And it's nowhere near as nice as some of the rental cars I've had. But I own it. And the difference between accountability and ownership is now it's internal and living your work is internal. And that's a change in, in evolution of how we're leading in today's society. I think that's really interesting that that part about ownership and, and that gets to maybe one of the problems that we're seeing in 
in medicine right now. Um, you know, in before, you know, 1990, most patients that were admitted to the hospital, their primary care doctor was still taking care of them even while they were in the hospital. And that primary care doctor owned that patient. Um, we've moved to a system now where it's not really possible to do both outpatient primary care and inpatient at the same time, given all the uh, the demands of on, on each side of things. Um, mm -hmm. Some still do, but mm -hmm. um, a lot are, are unable to do it, given the, the demands from all multiple different angles. But now that, that that ownership is kind of gone, the patient will get admitted and they may have one primary doctor that goes off shift and gets another hospitalist uh, a few days later. Then you have multiple consultants coming in, you know, cardiologists, nephrologists, all not really owning the patient. And so mm -hmm. when you get down to trying to assign who is accountable for that patient's, you know, if, if they did have an adverse event or if they did have a prolonged hospital stay or uh, mortality, um, actually getting agreement on who was, who primarily owned that patient is hard. And we run into that when we go and talk with different physician groups on uh, regarding their data, especially around quality. And I think that's something we've really lost over the past uh, couple of decades. And I just wanted to know what your what your thoughts were on that. I mean, how can you really drive quality and improvements if, if without that ownership? I think what if you and, and most most organizations they focus on the end game, right? And so you build that ownership into. It will go and make the standards, and I talk about right the the KPI versus the KPA. If I build standards around my key performance actions, this is what I do. No matter who it is, it's consistent, and those ownership principles are built into the KPA, the key performance actions, and you'll get a consistent key performance indicator. So when you're talking about if I want to lose weight, right, I stand on the scale every day. That's patient care. That's the KPI. But if I watch what I eat, I track right what I drink, my exercise, if I do this consistently, I'll get that consistently. And so building standards into the, the what you do, the KPA, rather than the KPI, most companies build a standard into the KPI the end game rather than the KPA. And then the second part, when you're talking about respect for people, think about it like this here uh, also. So when you're looking at your, your, your KPA, when people, when people own it, when they don't know, or it's not, I'm not gonna call it personal. They're not attached to the action. So like my son, right? You've heard saying measure what matters. Great companies, you have to measure what matters. If you don't measure it, then it's not happening. And they stay so focusing on measuring what matters. But this happened with my son. He played basketball at St. Vincent St. Mary's High School. That's where LeBron James went. And they won the state championship. Well, the day before, we went to the gym every day and put up 300 shots. And he had to shoot 60%. The last day before the second state final, he shot 80%. But I had to go to a meeting and I couldn't I couldn't watch. He called he sent me the picture and he looked like he was crying. I called him. I said, son, what's wrong? He goes, what do you mean, dad? I shot 80 percent. I said, but look, you're frowning. He says to me, dad, can I tell you something? That 80 percent meant nothing because you weren't here. Today, I realized that I'll never remember all the games you came to, but I'll never forget the two you missed. And he says, dad, can I share something with you? I love you. 
But I'm going to tell you something. Good leaders measure what matters, but great leaders embrace the fact that everything that matters can't be measured. Oh, I like that. And that's how you change cultures. Wow. 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 What a great uh, way to, uh, to bring our time to a closure, you know, as a, as a father of, of two and I'm an empty nester now and, and Dr. Lancaster, I know has two young boys. Uh, what, what a great way, uh, and well, listen, I just want to say, Billy, on, on behalf of Connecting the Dots podcast and Baptist Memorial Healthcare and, and just the overall improvement world, you are just such a, a rock star to me. And I'm so incredibly thankful for you and appreciative for your time. And just thank you for coming on today. Both of you, thank you for having me on. And it's been a, a, a very, very humbling and fulfilling experience for me to be on the podcast. So, Look forward to joining you again. So I don't want to make this the, the first and last time. Absolutely. Have you back. Absolutely. Great. Thank, Thank you. you so much.